Station six, Jesus is nailed to the cross. I want to give you 12 random letters. I want you to look at these letters, and, and I think we have a slide for that. They're all jumbled together, and where you put the spaces and where you put the punctuation might make a difference. So if you take this, let me, let me show you. Let's just add a couple of spaces and put a period at the end and see what we have. God is nowhere. Uh, from random letters kind of scattered, now it's become a sentence or an opinion, um, which is the belief of many living in our culture today. So for the next few minutes, I invite you to take these random letters with you and join me on a walk as we walk to the scene of the cross. Uh, I'm going to ask Becky if she'll come up and read our scripture from Luke 23, 33 to 46, and I would like for you to stand for the reading of the Holy Word. When they came into the place called the skull, they, cru- they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching. The rulers even sneered at him. They said they saved others. Let him save himself if he is the God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the others rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly for what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you go into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It is now noon. The darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, in your hands I commit my spirit. When he said this, he breathed his last. last. The word of of God for the people of God, thanks to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Becky. Would you join me for a word of prayer? Lord, we cannot fully comprehend the humiliation and the suffering that you endured on the cross. Nevertheless, Lord, would you just help us to understand and be affected by this story. Help us to even tremble at the thought of the one who loves us enough to take our own burdens and sin, giving his life so that we might live. May this message today be about revealing your beauty, Jesus. Thank you. Amen. 
What I'd like to do is just take this passage and kind of break it down verse by verse or a few verses at a time and just talk about it with you. Um, Let's start back at the first verse of 33. When they came to this place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Now, if we were a culture who crucified or hanged our criminals, um, we would have to have a place to do that, right? And it probably would not be at the square in downtown Garland. It probably wouldn't be over in that middle area with the fountain of firewheel. It wouldn't be in your backyard. But I would think that we would go way, way outside of the city to find some barren land Uh, ugly land worth nothing because what we're going to put on that land is horrific and we want to get it downwind so we don't get a lot of the smells. Uh, We don't really want to see it. But back in the day of Christ, the Romans looked at crucifixion very differently. Uh, There was such a place that they had and it is to believe, it's believed to be on the outer skirts of Jerusalem. But if you've ever been to Jerusalem or looked at maps, it's not that far from the town because everything is right together. And the, where they hung the criminals was for a reason, not to be hidden from everybody out of town, but so everybody could see what was happening. That way they could uh, detour criminals. They could detour people who were thinking about doing something that was against the law. It was not uncommon for big groups of people to come and just watch. I guess they didn't have Netflix. Uh, But it was something that they were kind of drawn to, you know, the gruesomeness and And, you know, they were just a little bit drawn to that. Certainly, it's no place that we would have taken our children to be at. If Charlie Manson had lived during that time, I bet he would have been in that place. That place has become known as Golgotha, and it's a huge rock. They also refer to it as the place of the skull. And that's because if you stand back, and look at it, part of the the rock makes the image of a skull. It represents death. It represents how the government dealt with everyday criminals. The worst of the evil were taken there to live through one of the most horrific tortures at that time. Even though it was so horrific and so terrible and so barbaric, It was used a lot during that time. Crucifixion was the most painful and degrading forms of capital punishment in the ancient world. Prior to the act of crucifix, Adam mentioned this last week, that the person was scourged or beaten with a whip consisting of things like bones and rocks tied together so that when they flogged the person, it would open the skin, and bring blood. This, this actually, I read in my reading this week, is that it actually hastened the death. Typically, after the flogging, the 
the prisoner was made to carry his own cross, and the reason for that was so that they could break his will to live. The Romans used crucifixion as a means to punish, but also to discourage others. Recently, I read where um, the Romans were so focused on people seeing what was happening that they would even go on the out, just on the roads to the side of the road and crucify people. In verse 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Now, I sat for a long time just really thinking about this verse, what Jesus was doing. In the midst of being crucified, in the midst of being hanged on the cross, he was thinking and praying about others. At this point, we would think that he would be so wrapped up in himself with all the pain and the torture that he must be enduring that he would only be concerned about himself, about his torture, about his life that was about to end. But no, at the point of death, he was concerned about others. I thought it might be interesting to compare Jesus' last words on the cross to some other criminals. Jeffrey Williams was a man living in Houston and was executed in 2014. He had shot a policeman point blank just a couple of feet away and had killed him. And he had been tried and was sentenced to death. His last words were, I love everyone who loves me. I ain't got no love for anybody who don't love me. Or take Saddam Hussein, who in 2016 was executed. He was the notorious leader of of Iraq. His famous last words, down with the traitors, may God damn you. Now that's shocking. But then look at Jesus in all of his pain and torture and having been treated so unfairly. And here are the words he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. See, this is totally unexpected. They thought that they could bring him down by torturing him and hanging him. But even on the cross, he was thinking about his father's business. He was thinking about his mission to this earth. This was a different kind of a king that the world had never known, like John said earlier. And it was a very different kind of kingdom that people on earth had not known. Let's go to verse 35. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. And the soldiers came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of Jews, save yourself. At this point, Jesus knows that he's dying the death of a criminal, even though his mission was about peace and repentance, healing, 
and about God's reconciling kingdom for Israel and the nations. He knows that this is the path that he must take in order to fulfill God's plan of redemption for all peoples of the world. If you recall earlier in Matthew, Matthew 5, we see a scene of Jesus teaching the Beatitudes. And, and he, it was polar opposite of what people had thought. But he was teaching, uh, invoking God's blessings on the poor and the hunger, hungry and the mourner. And now it's interesting to think that while he's up there on that cross, he is living out one of those Beatitudes. That is, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Verse 38. There was a written notice above him which read, King of the Jews. Now each of the four Gospels mention this inscription that was written out and hung above the cross of the criminals that were dying. It was kind of a way of announcing what crime that person had committed. Examples might be, thief or murderer. And I thought it might be interesting to think about how they came up with Jesus's inscription, that they sat around and they said, well, we can't put up murder, can't put up thief. Let's just make a joke out of it. He calls himself king. Let's make him king of the Jews. And finally, they decided, this is who we're going to mock This is who we're going to make fun of because we don't understand him. But what was interesting is that same sign, King of the Jews, was in reality a proclamation of Jesus' royalty. 39, one of the criminals who hung there hurls insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. And this man who has done nothing wrong, he deserves, he does not deserve this. Then he said, Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And look how Jesus answered him. Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. So the scene is we've got these two criminals on either side of Jesus. They're having a conversation. One of the men is taunting Jesus, daring him to save him, kind of just agging on. The other man expresses Luke's whole view of the scene. And when we see that Jesus in all of his agony, in all of his pain, in all of his misery, was still concerned for the sake of others. It was indeed a new king that the world was was seeing here. It was a new kingdom that the world had never known before. In his three years of ministry, Jesus had stood on its head the meaning of kingship and the meaning of kingdom itself. According to the high priest, he had celebrated with the wrong people, offered peace and hope to the wrong people, 
and had warned the wrong people about God's coming judgment. And we find him once again living out his true royalty by his prayers and his promises. Unlike traditional martyrs, he died with a curse against, uh, who died a, a curse against their torture. Jesus surprises everybody and prays for them. He praises, he gives a place of honor and bliss to the one who requests it. Right to the very end, we see that with the other thief on the cross. So Jesus' mission and his reign were extended to the losers, to the outsiders, to the ugly, to the poor. They, it, it was extended to the B team and the, and the C team and the, the D team. All those people who didn't have a place with the priest, the high priest, popularity, were taken in by Jesus. Jesus prayed for his torturers right up to the end. Let me give you an illustration. Jesus loved like a rose. So you ask me, and I think we have a, a slide with that. So you ask me, what does that even mean? What does that look like? Well, let me explain to you. You see, a rose doesn't discriminate in whom it gives its fragrance to. If it did, it wouldn't be a rose. It's impossible for a rose to say, I'll offer my fragrance to this person, but not to this one. I don't like your nose. Your nose is too big. It's too dirty. No, the fragrance of a rose is offered to everyone, and it does not discriminate to whom it gives fragrance to. But I want to point out one more quality of the rose, and that is that a rose even gives fragrance to the people who trample it. A rose does not even withhold its fragrance from the person who crushes it. Jesus Christ is the rose of God. He offers his love to all, even those who trampled him. Let's look at verses 44 and 45. It was about noon... And the darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. It really happened. We don't have to guess. We don't have to wonder if it was a mistake. We didn't get it wrong. It's true. You can rely on it. The whole world stood still, and darkness filled the whole earth. I suspect that the darkness was so thick you almost could reach out and touch it. And Luke pointed out that it lasts for three hours. So why all the darkness? Luke was linking it to the sad events that had led up to the death of Christ. It symbolized separation. It symbolized the remoteness of God maybe even the absence of God. So earlier, we rearranged the 12 letters, and it said God is nowhere. And I wonder if that statement didn't instill the fear in the people during that time of darkness. 
Also, up in the, in the two verses that we looked at, in verse 45, the curtain of the temple was torn. The veil that had separated the people from the temple was ripped apart. And let's take a look at the historical temple and the construction. It normally had two restricted areas, and then it had one general area, uh, three distinct areas. Now, the first area was for the general members of the community. Everyone could come in. The second area was restricted to the high um, the religious leaders, the chief religious leaders, the hierarchy in religion. And then the third was even restricted beyond that. So the best of the best of the best of the clergy were allowed to go into this inner room. Why did they believe that the inner room was so special? They believed that the deity, that God actually dwelled in that room. I know it's not to scale, but let's just kind of use our sanctuary as the temple. Let's say this part right here is open to the general population of the community. This is where you come in and sit. And the stage might be limited for, let's say, the deacons, uh, the elders, um, maybe the worship team. But if you were just the general person, you were not allowed on this stage. And even, even the other inner sanctuary, maybe the baptism here, that could have been the inner room. And, and maybe there would have been a veil or a curtain over it separating deity from the people, from the common people, so that General people could not come here, and they certainly could not go there. And a lot of the people who could come on this stage, the deacons, the elders, the worship team, only the elite of those people could go in there because they believed that that's where God is. But the veil separated the people from God. So you find this, this time of darkness in the world. This is crucial to God's plan. During that darkness, that veil which separated God from his people was torn. It was torn in two. It was destroyed. So that God now has access to his people through Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? I thought it was, was really, really strong. Um, and, and, you know, until this Lent season, I really had not thought too much about the veil. But as I was studying um, for this message, I found myself continually drawn back to the veil. And we just talked about the veil of the temple and that it was ripped apart and destroyed. I want to talk about another veil, uh, the one that we use for ourselves. I came across a passage in the New Testament I thought just really linked this to the, to the passage in Luke that we're studying tonight. 2 Corinthians 3, 16, 18. So we're moving over 
to uh, a little bit further down in the New Testament. Let me read this to you. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with everlasting glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So, let's just talk about the veil, the one that that many of us still have on, the veil that, that hides, um, hides who we are. There's a couple of reasons we use a veil. Uh, one, if I could just slip this over my head. I ask, can you really see who I am? The veil hides, hides me from you in that, that I've got under my veil, I've got all this shame, all this guilt, all the things that I have done wrong. And, and if I put, pick up a mirror and I look into the mirror to see who I am, it's obscured. I can't really see who I am, but I'll tell you who I think I see. I see someone who's ashamed. I, I see someone who's carrying a lot, of, a lot of baggage. I can look and see I'm a loser. I can look and see that I'm unworthy. I am a nobody. The culture tells me I'm a nobody. And, and so the veil not only prevents me from you knowing who I am, the veil itself prevents me from knowing who I am. Do you see that? Do you see that? It's, it's such a visual. And, and we see this in the page, passage that we're looking at. But then you see that this is what Jesus, if I can get out of this, this is what God did to the veil in the temple. He ripped it apart. He takes the veil off of us. No more do we have to hide. No more do we have to, to look at ourselves as a person with all this guilt, with all this shame. No longer do we have to live behind the veil because now we are free. This verse says we are free if the Lord removes our veil. And when I look into the mirror without the veil, I can see who I really am. I can see that I am a child of God's. I am blessed by him. He made me. He wants me. He saves me. And there is no more veil. Look look at this... um, um, this verse again in another translation, verse 18. I love how it, it, it just kind of explains what we just talked about. All believers behold the glory of the Lord in the scripture and are transformed into the image of God. Christ is the image of God's glory to glory, an ever-growing glory 
as God, the Spirit of God, transforms them into the likeness of Jesus Christ. This is a description of the gradual process of sanctification. This is what was referred to in the other version as the freedom of the Lord. This is freedom to live without all the baggage. Freedom to know that Christ has died for my sins and I no longer own them. I don't have to own them. I am a free person. If we want to become like Christ, we must spend quality time focusing on him in the word of God. This reflection then becomes a raw material that the Spirit of God uses to form Christ in us. This is the process that, that we say sanctification. What is sanctification? Well, we want to become holy because God is holy. That's why we as disciples of Jesus Christ study, study the Word, not, not just so that it will be beautiful reading and we can check off that we've read the, the Bible in a year, but, but we read it so that those words become life itself to us. And, and that it doesn't, it doesn't just, we don't just hear it and it stops. We hear it. We have eyes to see it. With the help of the Holy Spirit, we embrace it. We are touched in our hearts by his word. But it doesn't stop there. We're not just touched in our hearts, but the words, the life of Jesus Christ penetrates our hearts so that we can become more Christ-like, so that we can be transformed into Christ-likeness. Let's go back to Luke. We have one verse left, and it's verse 46. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he said this, he breathed his last. Jesus died an innocent man. He also died a righteous man. And sometimes I wonder, why didn't you just get off of that cross and show him who you were? But God knows better than I do. They couldn't find anything wrong with Jesus. But what I've learned through studying him through the years is that this is not a plan gone wrong. This is not plan B because there was never a plan B. This is the kind, that, as, as in the case of Joseph, Remember the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. What the Romans did to be evil, God, God played Pilate like a fiddle. This is God's plan. This is the kind of true religion that we see, the upside-down kingdom so at the beginning of this message, you're probably tired of carrying all those letters around with you. Um, bring them up and let's make a new sentence, grouping them. 
God is nowhere is the attitude that represents fear of those who do not know Jesus. But if you switch them around a little bit, now you have God is now here. God is now here. Would you bow with me? (coughs) Almighty God, we are awed by you. We become familiar with the events of Holy Week, but Father, sometimes we just don't understand why they went down. And yet, looking at, back at your scripture, at your words, which explain it, and with the help of the Holy Spirit, we can totally embrace the events of Holy Week to know that this was God's plan of redemption for all peoples in the world. We know that we can have a personal relationship with Christ, that that is our way into a relationship with God the Almighty. So, Father, I thank you for the scripture that you've given us today. I thank you for the Holy Spirit working to simply make this beautiful, what Jesus did for each of us. And Father, as we partake of the Eucharist, we do this in remembrance of all you have done for us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. As you leave this place, turn around and take one more look at the cross. Embrace its suffering and shame. Don't be afraid. For this is where we find our own story and hope for the world. Brand this image on your heart. Let it transform you to be more like Christ. Know that Jesus willingly died so that you could live. Go in peace and in the love of Jesus.